0: There was an idea hatched uh, that we could rob drug dealers for money. We had parties and we knew that people were selling drugs. We didn't particularly appreciate that uh, and said, well, we can rob them. And we began a two week crime spree where we you know, leveraged fear and uh, violence on suspected drug dealers with robberies, which culminated in a man being murdered in his home on December 3rd, 1999. I was sentenced to 26 years to life in prison for being there. When I got to my mom's house, I was in ridiculous battle dress uniform with paint on my face. And, you know, she's screaming, like, tell me you are not there. And I'm like, I was there, but I'm, and I'm trying to minimize it. I was there, but I didn't shoot anyone. I didn't kill anyone. I remember my dad went out first uh, down to the end of the driveway. And the police called my mom and said, we know he's inside. Tell him to come out with his hands up if he wants to live. So 20 years old, I walk out, you know, five officers with, you know, shotguns, nine millimeters, what have you, and I get down, I get handcuffed. And as they're ushering me up the driveway, there's a throng of people, news reporters, neighbors talking. And at the edge of it all is my dad, and he's crying profusely. And in that moment, something hit me. I mean, I'm crying as well. I don't even know what's next. I knew in that moment, but that that my life wasn't just about me. Like I thought it was all about me. But in that moment, when I saw my dad, I realized it wasn't. I realized how my choices impacted the people I loved.
1: Welcome to Intersections, where our quest is to help you and I and all of us individually and collectively find our full potential by dissolving boundaries. Today, I'm going to invite into our midst, joyfully so, joyfully so, Jason Bryant, a dear friend and someone who today works as a Director of Programs at CROP, which is an organization founded to envision a society that invests in people over punishment and is dedicated to reforming California's criminal justice landscape. CROP stands for Creating Restorative Opportunities and Programs. There is a lot more to Jason, his life, his spirit, his work, but rather than have me introduce all of that to you in this moment, you know the um, powerful credentials that brings us and him together for this moment, I would rather that you kind of just learn that from him as part of the story that unfolds in our conversation together. And so, it's a great joy and privilege to have in our midst Jason Bryant. Jason, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Hitenada. It's a pleasure to be here. You and I go back now a few years and Perhaps, like, are you open to just recounting for our friends, like where our connection started? Sure. So,
0: uh, when myself and the rest of our leadership team were released from incarceration, there was a transition from being people who were inside of prison, supported by the crop organization, to people who were directing the organization. And uh, the impetus for us was to, you know, devise a program that really supported people coming out of incarceration in a holistic and supportive way. And one thing we knew we needed was to help people get their minds right, the right mindset. It's also something that we had done to varying degrees of success over years inside together was the personal leadership development. But what we wanted to do and what we needed to do was to make sure that it was still effective out here in the community. Yeah. So a good friend of mine and colleague at one point in time, his name's Ken Oliver, he actually reached out to you via LinkedIn, I believe, and made the connection as one of the premier thought leaders in personal leadership development,
1: and he's the, a force. Ken is <laughs> a real force. <laughs> he's a force of nature. He is.
0: He is. And uh, you know, he he reached out to you and and introduced you to me, and you know, the rest is
1: history. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm so grateful that he made that connection. As you know, I've known you and um, learned more about your story, but also about your um, values, your purpose, uh, your life's work. You know, the spirit that. Uh, flows so beautifully through you. It's been a great joy. It's been a tremendous privilege for me. And I know that it's not just for me because recent times, we've you know, invited you to come over and actually teach a class you know, at Columbia Business School in my Executive MBA program on personal leadership. And I know how much of an impact you've had on their lives as well, because I hear it from them. I see it in the reviews you know, of the class. So, so again, you know, you're, a, you're, a, you're a beautiful soul. I'm just so grateful the universe has brought us together, and since at least one of us believes in reincarnation, I have to say, I, I think, I think you know, I known you in a previous life. Well, I'm an agent of possibility,
0: so I'll, I'll allow that as
1: a <laughs> possibility. Yeah, yeah, you're also very mature and where, You know, as someone says, your beliefs are very loosely on your shoulders. You know, very open to receiving new ideas and thoughts, which I much admire in you. So, Jason, look, we want to go a little bit into your sort of like into your personal journey. But before we do that, just so that people understand what CROP is and what you're doing now, can you explain a little bit the thesis behind that organization and you know why CROP and what is CROP? Sure. So, uh, CROP stands for Creating Restorative Opportunities and Programs. And it
0: was actually founded in 2008 by my co-defendant, uh, who I, I'm assuming will get a little bit into that story, uh, with the support of his father. So, my co-defendant's name is Ted Gray. He was incarcerated with me for 20 years. He was in his eighth year of incarceration when he had an epiphany. And basically what he, he came to realize while well, sitting in the hole, which is like, um, it's called administrative segregation. It's a prison within a prison. Was that his life shouldn't be determined by the situation in which he was in. That he had the ability to create impact no matter where he was. So with the support of his dad, they founded the Crop Organization. And initially the idea was that Crop can serve as a mechanism to introduce sporting equipment and music equipment onto the prison yard and help to disrupt the antisocial and race-based gang politic which pervades most California prisons. Because Ted had a very fundamental idea that it's hard to hate someone who you play baseball with or who's in a band with. So that's how it started. Over the years, me and Ted connected, reconnected in 2010 at a different prison. And you know there's a lot to that story which we'll unpack. But there were many programs that were provided, are supported through crop that we stewarded together and created together uh, all the way up until the reentry program, which were, which I currently oversee today.
1: Rooting for you as you take on this very, very beautiful cause, we can reflect a little bit on just the state of the world and um, the significance of what you're doing in imparting just so many valuable lessons to so many of us who are challenged and struggling in our own ways, and I want to get there perhaps later in the conversation. But for now, let's um, do a flashback to the years in which you were growing up in your family. And um, what was that like? You know, What are your earliest memories and what was that like?
0: I'll start by saying this. One of the things that people who are sentenced to life in prison do is reflect and develop insight into like, what was the source of your thinking that resulted in that type of behavior being okay. I was in a conversation with a friend of mine on a prison yard, preparing myself for board for parole board in the conversation. Like I was struck by this idea I had about what it meant to be impulsive or reactive or, want to get or 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 have an experience of anger and upset whenever i felt embarrassed and it came all the way back to my earliest memory which was with my mom and my dad and i was about five years old four or five years old now my father was black from new jersey my mom is italian from rhode island and it was a very loving home but there were arguments and this argument stood out as my earliest memory because in this argument my mom Uh, She was really upset about something my dad did, and she said a racial slur. And uh, when she said it, like, immediately, my dad, his reaction, he jumped up from the table and chased her down the hall. She locked herself in the bathroom. There was no actual physical violence, but there was emotional trauma there, right? So, like, why is that my first memory? Because it was outside of the norm, and it was very traumatic to see that. What happened at that moment, though, which I didn't realize until I was in, you know, my early 40s. at that moment was kind of a catalyst it was something that i used to begin developing a system of beliefs about how it is how i should react if someone ever called me a name like that or tried to embarrass me or make me seem like i was less than so my parents like i said they were very loving i was only child they did everything they could to provide me with every opportunity and because i was largely the only person of color in my elementary schools junior highs and high schools. I chose to continue to lean into those beliefs about how I should respond or react to people who attempted to make me seem like I was less than, but they did the best they could. Uh, You know, they exposed me to all types of opportunities, sports, quality education, took me on trips, but I still had the freedom to make the choices and the, and establish the beliefs about how I believed it was in the world.
1: Did you have siblings? So I have
0: five siblings who are from my dad's side and I'm my mother's only child.
1: I see. I see. You grow up. You're a teenager. You're getting more involved with, um, you know, the community beyond just your family. Talk to us about sort of, you know, what what forces at play there in your life and and where it takes you.
0: I don't know if it's like a an uncommon experience. I would assume it's very common for young men to give themselves over to this idea that masculinity is tied to sports, violence. The objectification of themselves, the objectification of young ladies. my teenage years were sh- certainly saturated with all of that, and you know, I, I was intentional. However, like unaware above the waterline, below the waterline, there was a very clear intention that I wanted to associate with people who fit that paradigm, who were the tough kids, who were the ones who were out partying and, and being reckless, and I wanted to prove that I fit in with those people. so right. by any means necessary. And uh, that's that's really where Ted and I first met. We we moved to no, from Los Angeles County to Northern California when I was 15 years old. I was a sophomore, and again, I, I'm now I'm going to an, another high school where I'm the only person of color. And uh, Ted was a senior, two years older than me to the day. We have the same birthday, and he, he was the all-American boy. He was the toughest kid in our school, and. You know, all all the guys wanted to be him, and all the girls wanted to be with him. So uh, that was very appealing to me. And he liked me for whatever reason. I'm still trying to figure out to this day. And and we began to hang out, and and we had, became fast friends all the
1: way up and through criminality. Ted, and your story is quite tied. Then during that period of your life, and it's you know already a glimpse that we received how that tie has stayed you know very strong despite the you know your time in prison, and here you are back together again. just something powerful for the world so where did things go wrong i would have to say like for me personally it
0: was it had been going wrong and it had been going wrong because of the way i was thinking about my life i remember i had just gotten generally discharged from the navy so a little bit more context because of the way i was living my life i had but before i had graduated high school i had already had a, a drug problem i had gone to rehab and I joined the navy and I washed out of the navy because I didn't want to follow rules and I remember my parents very concerned still always loving me always supporting me they took me to breakfast one day and they said son what are you doing with your life like what do you want for yourself I was 19 years old and you know I was arrogant entitled had a belief that you know, i didn't have to do anything and didn't want to do anything and i responded that you know my ideal life is to lay in bed all day and play video games that was my aspiration at 19 years old and you know one of the things that we teach or we share with a perspective we share with folks is uh, intentions plus a mechanism equals results so that intention that i spoke out you know i found a mechanism and it was was prison because in reality in prison you don't have to do anything if you wanna sit in the bed all day, you can. That's your choice. So it, went, it's, it had been going wrong, Atendra. When Ted was 22 years old, uh, he and I were living together, you know, partying, being reckless. Um, he was at a point where he was in, in a failing marriage. We were both enabling each other with this sense of, uh, you know, we can do what we want and it's cool to be a thug mentality. We're playing video games with another with our other co defendant who is still incarcerated to this day. And there was a there was an idea hatched uh, that we could rob drug dealers for money. We had had parties and we knew that people were selling drugs. We didn't particularly appreciate that, uh, and said, "Well, we can rob them." And we began a two week crime spree where we you know leveraged fear and uh, violence on. Uh, suspected drug dealers with robberies, which culminated in a man being murdered in his home on December 3rd, 1999. I was sentenced to 26 years to life in prison for being there in California. If you are, this law has recently changed, but if you're convicted of, if there's a felony that occurs and someone dies, you're guilty of murder. And that's what I was charged with, the felony murder. Ted and my other co-defendant, Jeff, they were sentenced to 40 years to life as the shooters. In the crime, Ted Ted was shot three times by our victim and the commission of the crime, and uh, yeah, so it was all bad then. And um, I remember being apprehended. We had evaded the police initially, and I was apprehended at my parents' home. When I got to my mom's house, I was on foot. I was in like ridiculous battle dress uniform with paint on my face and. You know, she's screaming, like, tell me you aren't there. And I'm like, I was there, but I'm, and I'm trying to minimize it. I was there, but I didn't shoot anyone. I didn't kill anyone. Like you were there, because she knew like you're there, you're you're in a lot of trouble. And my dad, he reminded me that, you know, he he's very old school. He said, you know, basically, I'm like, Dad, what do I do? And he's like, Well, if if you do the crime, you gotta do the time. You gotta turn yourself in. So, which leads to my 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 first like real transformational moment. And then, you know, I'll pause there, but it's I think it's 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 an important one. I remember my dad went out first uh, down to the end of the driveway. And the police called my mom and said, we know he's inside. Tell him to come out with his hands up if he wants to live. So 20 years old, I walk out, you know, five officers with, you know, shotguns, nine millimeters, what have you. And I get down, I get handcuffed. And as they're ushering me up the driveway, there's a, there's a throng of people, news reporters, neighbors, gawking. And at the edge of it all is my dad and he's, he's crying profusely. Like, and, and in my 20 years, I had never seen my father cry. He was really like just an old school kind of guy. And, uh, he'd broken arms in horseback riding accidents. I never saw the man shed a tear, but he was crying uncontrollably. And in that moment, like something hit me. I mean, I'm crying as well. I'm 20. I'm like, I don't even know what's next, but I knew, I knew in that moment, but that, that my life wasn't just about me. And that seems silly. Like most people would probably come to that awareness earlier. I would think, but I hadn't. Like I thought, it was all about me.
1: I realized how my choices impacted the people I loved. It's it's a challenging story to to visualize and hear and imagine what that must have been like. And at the same time, you've given us an incredibly powerful visualization to keep in our minds of you know what is it we're be be doing with our lives and you know how do we live them in a way so that you know those people who love us dearly and who we feel very grateful you know for their love and service and support to us and all. That we do not give them you know many reasons to uh to feel so sorrowful, right, about what we have done with our lives, so to say, right? Like, wow, that's um, that's so powerful. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing that. And so at, at this point, I, I assume that um, the next thing was uh, yeah, sentencing and a conviction, and you mentioned that, what, you said 20 years to to life imprisonment: 26.
0: So, you know, we, we went to county jail and
1: that's when like it, it
0: hit me like, okay, this is, this is jail. And then I had my public defender tell me like, you're looking at a lot of time in prison. And it wasn't registering for me because in my mind, it was like I, we were outside and initially it was supposed to be a burglary. And our victim came home and Ted was pressing for us to continue with the, the robbery. And I was saying, no, like, I'm like, no, we shouldn't do it. We shouldn't do it. And then I gave in. I gave in because it was more important for me to be seen as tough than it was for me to honor this sense I had inside me. Like, like, like we shouldn't be here at all. What I didn't realize was that the, the law said that you are guilty of murder if you're participating in a felony and someone dies. So they sentenced me to 26 years of life. They sentenced Ted and Jeff to 40 years of life. And we went to prison. And that was the a real culture shock because Ted was my best friend up until that point. And we went we entered into an atmosphere that said that because he's white and because I'm black, we couldn't spend as much time as you and I have spent on this podcast without there being some serious repercussions. So that was that was shocking and jarring. Ted initially because he had so much time kind of threw himself into the the politics of prison because he determined that he didn't want other people telling him wanted telling him what to do, he wanted to be the one to tell people what to do. And I shared with you earlier that it wasn't until eight years later that he had his transformational moment and founded the crop organization. For me, I I knew just from the experience of being arrested at my parents' house and seeing my dad cry, that I wasn't going to continue down that road. Now, this was 1999 and at the time, the, the governor made a very public decree that if someone had a life term in prison, the only way they would ever go home was with a toe tag on their foot. So basically you were consigned to die in prison. I was on level four, which is a maximum security institution, largely because of the nature of the crime and my point level, there's a point system. And I remember the counselor saying, I wish like this is your first offense. You've been in no trouble. Really in reality I hadn't been caught for anything. But you know, that you haven't been in any in the system. And I wish I could do something for you, but because of the laws I have to send you to the maximum security yard. But in spite of all that the atmosphere of despair where people were largely hopeless, I knew that I didn't want to continue to bring pain to my parents' hearts. And uh, I found a way to stay out of play, which was education. In
1: 2002, uh, my dad passed away. Did you have um, much contact with him prior to that?
0: So for my first two years in car- of incarceration, it bears mentioning for the first seven years of incarceration, my mom never missed a weekend visit, and for the first two, I think my dad only missed two visits. I remember my last visit with my dad, and uh, he had come by himself. He wanted to just spend some time with me, and uh, you know, he was doing his best to encourage his son. He's, he was 65 at the time, and he said, uh, "He said, you know, son, I'm gonna I'm gonna stick around. I'm gonna hang around until you get out, and we're gonna open that little bar you want together." And I was like, "Dad, but I got I've got another 24 years." before they'll even think about it. And he told me, he said, son, I don't care if it's 24 years, 24 months, 24 days. We've only got right now. So make the most of right now. And that stuck with me. But then he passed away and uh, that was really hard on my mom and myself. And I just put my head down and got to work on my education. And over the 20 years inside, as you mentioned, I earned a bachelor's degree in business. I earned a master's degree in philosophy and another master's degree in psychology, uh, along with the state certification. But I really wasn't aware of how I had not allowed myself the permission to mourn the loss of my father until 2012, which bears mentioning because I was so focused on just like, I'm going to get educated. I'm going to do what I need to do to get out of prison and, and make the most of this moment that my relationships were suffering significantly.
1: So there are two individuals who have died in the arc of the story so far, father, and uh, then, you know, the individual was a victim of that um, crime that you had hoped to do with no, you know, no person there, just a burglary. What was the moment or evolution that you went through that made you perhaps even reflect on that life and ask yourself, like, what kind of conditions and choices ultimately led to the taking of a life? And how has that been a factor for you? You know, you, you've spoken about you know, this other person in your life, your father, a very, very dear supporter and caregiver and, and and his loss. And I'm just curious if we can talk about that too.
0: This is another
1: like component of what the board of prison terms called suitability.
0: It's having remorse for your crimes and the impact, understanding the impact of the damage. And I wear that every day. I wear it every day i get a little emotional thinking about it because I'm a father. I have a four-year-old son and a three-year-old son. I see them grow. I watch them learn. I get to love them. I see their eyes light up and new experiences. And I realize that my victim has been robbed of all that. That lands heavily on my heart. He he too was a father. Uh, He would have been a grandfather. Yeah, I carry that with me every day in a very sacred space of like appreciating what I have and and mourning what I took, what I contributed to taking from another family. You know, the the wish I could have don't serve anyone. I can't turn back the hands of time. But what I have committed my life to is living in a way specifically as the type of father I am that serves as a form of amends for the transgression. Like I cannot turn back the hands of time and restore my victim's family, but I can ensure that I'm raising my sons in a healthy way, good values, so that they can contribute to the
1: world in a way in which I didn't. Yeah, no, thank you for sharing that. It's not something I perhaps shared with anybody as such, but um one of my like great fears is that I ever do any such like irreversible physical harm to somebody let's say like in driving a car or something and you know, having an accident that i'm responsible for or something like that so having experienced you know that that depth where where there is that irreversibility i think you know you have to be heroic to be able to you know i mean i guess it's easier if one has no empathy and it's easier if, you know one hasn't been in that situation but if one has been in that situation and one has empathy I can't imagine, you know, what a hero's journey one has to take, you know, from there on, to pick up the pieces of one's life. And just to close out, like that piece of the story, before we move into, you know, other aspects of your experience in prison and the pursuit of your personal growth that you've gone through there, and then life beyond. Have you had any contact with, um, you know, the victim's family since you were convicted and thrown into prison? So there's there's very strict laws about. I'm contacting victims
0: ted was offered a commutation before me and then we were commuted together and when his commutation was first issued the victims a member of the victim's family actually reached out to him but no they they haven't contacted me and i'm prohibited from from contacting them largely you know for safety reasons proceed safety reasons and you know, the, as far as my story and, you know, my, my involvement in the crime, from what I understand, because we knew our victims, the, persp- the general perspective was that I was just following Ted. And while they obviously were deeply, deeply wounded and, you know, irrevocably angered by my involvement, I think that the perspective was that I was less culpable.
1: And, uh, and yet I'm sure they, they, you know, they've been in your, Heart and in your prayers, you know, for for the years. So uh, and you know, we all send out a prayer for them. We all send out a prayer for them. So so let's come back to that moment where you're now in prison. You had to confront the yeah, just uh, shocking reality of the massive shift that has happened in your life. Your father has passed passed away now. Mother continues to keep uh, visiting you in prison you started to go on a quest for investing in your growth, you're getting degree after degree. While you're doing that, you know, for, for those of us who have not spent time in prison, can you explain a little bit or share, just to help us feel a little bit, what that experience is like? Like, what are some of the dynamics that you have seen in the prison system and how, how exceptional or different are the choices you were making there versus what typically happens? I'll say this, you know, real prison is not like the movies while
0: there are, while it can be a very dangerous and violent place. The, the order of the day is monotony and routine movement, recreation, meals, education, work is all strictly governed by bells and officers predictability. As far as like the time in which you have the permission to do things and certainty that five o'clock p.m. every day, you'll be in your cell for count and at nine o'clock for count and the doors will be locked. Right. So a lot of monotony, very stark atmospheres. Uh, I served time in three different prisons over 20 years. I started at High Desert, went to Old Folsom and then ended my term in uh, CTF Soledad, where I spent the last 10 years with Ted. And, you know, uniformly, you can expect a context, which, in my opinion, was created to invite a sense of oppression and despair. Like, that's what the context was established to create, to punish for punishment. Like, when you're in prison, you know that you're punished. And that's a a powerful temptation for a lot of people, especially back when I went in. And they said that, hey, you're gonna die here. It's a powerful temptation. The atmosphere is a powerful temptation for people to tell themselves, all I have is my gang.
1: Yeah. So if I hear you correctly, as you're saying, you're made to feel like you're, you know, you're the bad guys in the world, and justice has been done where you're now being punished for your for your bad deeds and that you'll forever stay bad. So just going back
0: you know to the the war on the war on crime tough on crime you know the three strikes law there there was a a social movement and it started way before that Atendra. At to be honest i mean this there's a there's a book called the new jim crow by michelle alexander that, that highlights the journey from slavery to mass incarceration in america so this is a. You know, I'm not big on all, all of that conversation, but it's a reality when you look at the results, when you look at the results, like the purpose of prison. And it is actually in the California Penal Code over 600 times. The purpose of prison is to punish. And, you know, when, when in California specifically with the three strikes law, there was a, a series of decades where it was lock them up and throw away the key. That's why we have 33 institutions in California, 33 prisons. What happened? I mean, there was a sh- there was a shift eventual because it's it was unsustainable to just keep locking people up, locking people up. But w- when they were doing it, yes, the the atmosphere was built to say this is it for you. You've been reduced to a number, a C- they call it a CDCR number. It was a CDC number when I first went in, and you are to be treated as less than human. I mean, that's the generality, but it was a pervasive experience that many of the staff and guards. Had for the incarcerated population.
1: I see. And then, what about the relationship um, between prisoners? So, you know, if 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 your skin color was different, um, then you weren't friends.
0: That it's because at any given time, uh, a black guy and a white guy could have an incident on the yard, and the respective races are like
1: expected to to have a riot. Okay. So let me try to understand that in the world outside prison. We have been evolving a fair amount. There's much more work to be done. But, you know, I was looking at the statistics on interracial dating, for example, and, Mm -hmm. you know, the like. And there's been some meaningful moving of the needle over the last several decades from the much more blighted state we were in, even in the 70s. And, you know, and, and even in the early times of Bill Clinton's era. But, you know, today, while much more improvement is needed, I mean, we are living in a, World that doesn't have as severe and strong, you know, racial divides with much more work to be done, but what you're just describing here is sounding like it's yeah, it's a throwback to like some past era. I mean, there's obviously
0: history. There's a lot of history behind this, and I mean, I can give you a synopsis. If you think back to the '60s, the '70s, civil rights movement, a lot of the people who were incarcerated were black. Not many people who were incarcerated were white. It was a small population. It's still true today. Now, when you put someone in an environment that tempts them to view themselves as less than, as an animal, they're probably going to accept that invitation and behave as such. So there was a lot of predatory behavior that occurred. It still occurs to this day. You strip people of their humanity. You strip people of their dignity. And you say, here you go. Here's your, your small yard. To recreate on, and and you know, necessity is the mother of invention. When it comes to not only the good things in life, but also the bad ones, so people are coming out of very marginalized, impoverished communities with distorted beliefs, and then they're thrown in a box and say and told you're an animal. And so, what what is the natural inclination or the temptation which most people have given themselves to in prison is I'm going to be with people who I grew up with on these streets from this area of this color skin. And they are our enemy because they were our enemy out there, so they're our enemy in here. And then it becomes a, a game of positional power.
1: How many times do you see someone like you emerge from within that system who's who's saying that? Look, I mean, I, I don't want to accept this, and I I want to rise rise above this, and I I want to educate myself. And you know, I don't know how long I'll be in prison, but I you know, I, I just want to uh, anyway. I mean, like, how common is that? More common than most people think.
0: I'll say this. You know, I've. I've had a lot of conversations in the three years I've been home with folks who were like, oh, you know, this is like, your story's amazing. And it's not unique. It's not unique. Uh-huh. It's yeah. not unique. There, there is an abundance of individuals inside of prison. And things have progressively increased as far as the, the number of individuals who have decided they want want something new for their lives, especially mm-hmm. these last 10 years since the state has recognized, in California specifically, has recognized that we can't just warehouse people. And they started incentivizing programs. There's an abundance of people decision that I'm not going to go with the flow, yeah. I'm not going to go along to get along anymore. I'm going I'm to move in alignment with what I say is most important in my life Yeah, because you could go to the most hardcore prison in California, you could go to Pelican Bay today. Pelican Bay is like a level four, it's super max and you can go to the most quote unquote criminal person and say, what's the most important thing in your life? And they're not going to say my reputation. They're not going to say my hood. They're not going to say my drug empire. They're going to say my kids, my freedom, possibly God. But their behavior is not in alignment. Is most important. So what the state has done, and what people are realizing, is that if you provide people with resources, education programs, you know, vocational, you know, re- connecting them with reentry services like what we're doing at Crop, then that helps them make the choice to start living in alignment with what they say that is really most important in their lives.
1: Powerful statements about you know, the kind of public policy that um, really works versus the traditional structures that were very limiting. So there is another chapter that starts unfolding in your life in prison when you and Ted reunite. Yes. Something gets sparked. Can you share that? Because I found that like unbelievable. <laughs> So it's it's now, it's 2010, and I was a few classes away
0: from earning my bachelor's degree, and Ted transferred to my prison. I mean, it was Providence to me. Like, we started off at High Desert, and then I went to Folsom, and then my points dropped, and I went to a uh, CTF Soledad. And, you know, there's 33 institutions in California, so the likelihood that me and Ted would start at one prison and then end at the same prison was was Providence to me. He comes up to me on the yard. I'm like, hey, Ted, good to see you. Now, remember, I have the context of us being great friends in high school, making some terrible choices as young men. And then seven years on a yard where he was politicking. And I was staying to myself. I was staying to myself and doing my education. So I was a little leery, like, what's going on? He told me what him and his dad had done as far as establishing crop and a couple of years before and that they had done some stuff with sporting equipment. But he had a new idea. He said, He said, I really want you to work with me. Because I think we can help to start a program to get people certified as alcohol and other drug counselors, and you know provide them with like a career possibility outside of prison. And it could all, they can also help with the self help that's going on inside of prisons right now. So initially, I was like, I don't know, I'm doing pretty good, I'm doing all right by myself. And you know, last time we were together, it didn't work out so well. But he he shared with me an African proverb that I I use a lot today. It's I find it to be very true. It's, uh, you can either go fast alone or you can go far together. I was into poetry at the time, a little bit, philosophy and poetry. And I was reading this poem by John Donne called um, For Whom the Bell Tolls. And the general premise is the bell used, to, they would toll the bell when someone died. And, and the premise was, you know, ask not for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. Like you're a part of this thing called humanity. You're wrapped up in this thing, you're a part of it. And those two experiences, like, opened something up in me, I looked around and, you know, there's a sea of people in blue, just like me, who had very similar dreams to be free. Programs had started to be developed and like people wanted to go home and be reunified with their loved ones. And, and I hadn't done anything to support that. I had been locked in a cell you know, with my nose in books, trying to improve me, but not contributing to my community. And those two things, you know, were a powerful invitation for me to accept You know this this union this partnership between ted and myself to do some amazing things so we we went on a very intentional journey at ctf Soledad to identify leaders in the community people who were living in alignment with what they said was most important first meeting was we had about 20 individuals in a small classroom that we convinced the education department to let us use and we we charted out this idea and over the course of the next 10 years with our leadership team it came down to really four people who have been most committed Myself, Ted, uh, Richard Morales, and Matthew Braden. They affectionately call us the founders at CROP, um, but we, we successfully certified over 33 life term individuals as alcohol and other drug counselors by the state of California. Of the 33, uh, 31 have paroled, none have gone back. We were exposed to and expounded upon a personal leadership curriculum which we delivered and and, uh, stewarded to a little over a thousand incarcerated individuals, 300 college students who would come in periodically for seminar training. We wrote the book men bill for others, and we established a scholarship where the incarcerated population who earned between eight and 11 cents an hour raised a little over $32,000 in three years to support one young man in uh, attending a college preparatory school. So, some amazing stuff that we were able to do in 10 years. And and I'll say this, the contrast between the going fast alone, like my first 10 years was like me going fast alone. I was nose in the books and worried about me versus going far together. When I
1: began working with the team is just you know exponentially distinct. What a story of redemption, incredible redemption. Folks, I mentioned this before, but let me say it again. So here's Jason. In prison, you are picking up new skills. You are getting the education that you weren't able to allow yourself to get in freedom because you were in prison at the age of 20. And then you move into being a teacher. And then you move into being, in a sense, a people transformer, helping to give people a path for their own personal change and transformation and ultimately, you know, their own redemption. And in our work together in the last few years, here you are coming and talking to business school students at Columbia with a craft—a craft of helping people, you know, get sparked, uh, get to be challenged, get to open themselves up, pick up uh, certain tools to take more personal stewardship and ownership over their lives, make the right choices for themselves. You know, and that craft is a craft that you developed. And honed while being in prison and working with fellow incarcerated citizens. Incredible. And you mentioned another piece, which you spoke about kind of like a little bit fast, you know, at the end. Let's deep dive into that because, you know, a lot of this is going to be, you know, very educational, right, for our audience. So, our incarcerated friends, they get paid how much you said in prison for, you know, for work they do. So most jobs in prison include like,
0: you know, working in culinary or janitorial services. And
1: they're typically between 8 and 11 cents an hour. Yeah. What's the minimum wage today? I think it's the United States. Is it somewhere between 15 and 20 or something? Dollars? Dollars? An hour. Yeah. Yeah. Same labor for sure.
0: And I think the instructive part is that most people, and this is currently incarcerated people, formerly incarcerated people, people in general, want to be a part of something good. When we came up with this idea, it was really Ted, who had this amazing idea because we were in a book club. We had been serving some of the college students from a local community college in personal leadership development. And then we'd been attending book readings with uh, private school students. And the distinction between the two, the kids who were going to community college were like first-generation college students. Their parents were immigrants. And the kids who were going to college preparatory school were, you know, very well educated. It cost a lot to go to that school. And there, there was a, an instructor who was sharing a story of, about um, sacrifice. It was from a book called uh, "The Miracle on the River Kwai" about a um, prisoner of war camp and someone who made an ultimate sacrifice for their fellow POW. And Ted Lee and he said, "Jay, we need to do that. We were the leaders of a, of a self help program. He said we need to find a way to raise money." and support a young man who could not afford an education like this. So we brought together, there was probably close to 30 self-help programs running at our prison yard. We brought all the leadership in and we pitched this idea because we, we had the opportunity to do fundraisers, but typically the fundraiser looked like we would go door to door and ask people to contribute some of their hard earned pennies really uh, to to get like a thousand backpacks for students, or to feed the homeless, which is all very noble cause, noble causes. But what we presented was this was an opportunity instead of going an inch deep and a mile wide, to go an inch wide and a mile deep into someone's life, and see the impact that could result. And you know it was it was an amazing experience. Like I said, thirty two thousand dollars. Young man is now senior. His name is Sion Green. He's a senior in college, doing well, thriving. Yeah, CNN. Thought it was important to to chronicle, so Lisa Ling came in uh, with her camera crew. This is Life with Lisa
1: Ling, and they chronicled the the whole program, uh, and it was really remarkable. I mean, it's hard to believe, you know, such a special spark for Ted and you and you know the community to have. This must have been such a collective effort because thirty two thousand dollars at like 10, 12 cents an hour must have taken a lot of lot of contributions from a lot of people. Very very special, very special. So, how and when did you get Commute it, you know, in your sentence. Let me just backtrack just a little bit. So in 2019, in January,
0: yeah, they passed a law saying that if you didn't actually commit the murder or pull the trigger, then you shouldn't be charged with murder. So I had a very strong sense that I was coming home. I'd been married to my wife since 2014. God had blessed us with a son who was actually born on January 11th, 2019. So I thought I was coming home. And then... There was another thing that happened. The secretary of CDCR, who's who's like the head honcho, issued something on my behalf called 1170D that said, basically, the abundance of programming and education and and value that I've contributed to community while incarcerated deems me no longer a threat to society, and he suggested to the courts that I be released. I had those two things going, right? So a law change saying I shouldn't be in prison anymore. And the, the head of the department said he's no longer a threat to society. Let him go. They both got to the same judge in the same court and they were both denied. And then in December, oh, in November, I found out that my wife was pregnant with our second son. So, uh, you know, I was kind of at my wits end. It's like, oh my goodness, what else? Now now my wife is going to be out there with with two babies and I have another four years. Yeah, four years until I'm supposed to sit in front of a parole board. And
1: and the way sort of you and your wife were able to be together while you were serving in prison. Yeah. So
0: 2017, so we were married in 2014. And at the time, lifers had no conjugal visits or family visits. But in 2017, Governor Jerry Brown made a different decision, the power of the pen. He said that if you know people who don't have life terms have the opportunity to be with their family, then people who do have life terms and are programming uh, should have that opportunity. So he signed it into law that like people who have life can have family visits. And I was actually able to be with my wife and we conceived two children at CTF Soldat, which is very hard to do considering you only have a 48-hour visit
1: every three months. Were you dating or married when you went down that painful path and got arrested and incarcerated? No, I was living a life of objectification. Yeah, so then
0: how did you even get to know, you know? But I did know my wife, I've known my wife since I was 15 years
1: old. Yeah, how special, how special. And uh, yeah, you know, she's obviously played a very beautiful role in, in your life for years now. All right, so then, sorry, I interrupted you, but you were talking about how you faced that big setback in 2019 in the beginning.
0: Yeah, so 2019, it was an incredible blessing. You know, my son was born, my firstborn. And I had two prospects for freedom and they both were denied. And then in December, I remember calling my good friend and brother and colleague, Richard Morales, he had been released earlier that year. And, you know, I was like a mess, like, I don't know what to do. And he told me, he said, you know, you need to actually go to this group because some directors from a show called this is life with Lisa Ling. Want to talk to you. And then in January, you know, Lisa came in with her crew and did the the episode prison and prep school and in march it was march 28th so the warden was involved it was it was a pretty big deal it was the first time they'd ever allowed someone who has a life term visit a school so they actually took me to pama school which is the college preparatory school to address the students um it was, it was it was a pretty big deal there was a lot of pushback from the warden's administration and he approved it anyway um because he believed in the program he believed in the vision of uh, supporting CNN and, and helping the world see another version of the incarcerated population. So invariably, this this got back to the governor. And on March 28th, the warden came onto the yard of my institution and uh, called me over the fence, which is very unprecedented. You typically don't see wardens walking yards. And he said, he said, Brian, he said, give me your CDCR number. I gave him my numbers, P75550. And he said, well, I got a call this morning and I've been told to instruct you that the governor's ordered your immediate release from prison, which is like, really like super unprecedented. The, for those, for the viewers who don't know, like when you are sentenced to life in prison, the, the process for, for parole can be about a, a year long. So even if your sentence is commuted, like if they, if the governor were to say, I'm going to commute your sentence instead of 2026, you, you can go home in 2022. You still have to go through the board process, which is like a psych eval, which takes about three months. And then there's like a governor review, which is like another four to five months. So it's a while to hear that I was going to be immediately released. Like I was in shock, like, I don't even know what that means. And I said, well, what does that mean? The warden said, I don't know what it means, but his captain said, well, it sounds like you're going to be going home pretty immediately. And I was actually home six days later.
1: Did you and the governor
0: have any contact? We did. We did. So now Ted, Ted was immediately released, immediately released as well. So me and Ted were both immediately released and now we're, we're the directors of Crop, and we're like, okay, what's next? Myself, Ted, Richard, and Matt were out. And now there's four of us. And we said, well, what are you gonna do? What do we know how to do? We know how to have conversations with people about personal leadership, how to empower themselves, how to not allow their circumstance to determine the impact they can make in this world, how to establish a vision for a future that's worth having. Right. And where could we do it? We should do it, do it in prison, right? But it was COVID. This was April, 2020. The world is shut down. You couldn't leave your house, much less go into a prison. Ken Oliver, that force, served, served several years with us. And uh, he paroled in 2019 as well. And he had paroled to the Bay Area. And he'd been having uh, conversations with people. And, and through his own lived experience, noticed the siloed nature of reentry. How services were not connected for people coming home that really what reentry was, was an extension of prison, the punishment model. And he said, Hey, we can do it better. So the five of us sat around a table, just leaning upon our 100 combined years of incarceration, no real business experience, just this understanding of what it feels like with the experiences of someone in prison and and what they would need coming out. And we devised uh, the ready for life program together. And in January of 2021, Ted and I had the good fortune of, of speaking with Governor Newsom. Mm-hmm. Uh, really to thank to thank him for his grace and his mercy, um, but also to share like what we were doing with our reentry program. And you know, we laid it all out for him: the four pillar program that deals with people's mindset, provides them with digital literacy, as far as financial wellness. The skill set, providing like upskilling and training in tech adjacent careers. A lot of incarceration are they have more to offer the community than just to sweat off their back. They have some intellectual capital that they can offer as well. The connection with employment, and then the housing piece. He loved it. He loved it, and he said, you know, this is this is smart money. You know, investing in a program like this that really equips people for success upon reentry, versus taxpayers paying one hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year to keep someone in a box. Which is how much it takes. Is that right? It takes. It's approximately $120,000 a year to keep one person in a cell for a year, with only 2% of that going to their rehabilitation. So he identified the value. He said, I love it. If you can convince the legislature that it's something that the state needs, I'll sign it. And in July, of 2021, we we got the news that we were partnering with the state of California for three years to the tune of $28.5 million to launch uh, a reimagined reentry program.
1: Yeah, amazing. And uh, kudos, kudos to all of you for that. Jason, this has been an incredible conversation. We have explored so many facets of it. There is one more that I'd like to do before we close out today, and that is you know we're living in a very charged time in our communities you know in in society and uh, you know one aspect of it is just um, the social and political positions people take on the issue of crime and there appears to be you know two bodies of thought there you know one which says that we have historically been you know, extremely, yeah, just um, punitive and even racist in the way that we have dealt with crime. And we need to remedy and correct a lot of that by, you know, being a lot more understanding of like what we have done to create communities where there is a lot of proneness to crime and and deal with them with much more humanity, right? And then there is the other position, which is oh, wait a second, people have to be responsible for their own choices. And at the end of the day, they have to be certain. Absolutes in society that you just don't violate and do, you know, those things. And as long as you know everyone is aware of what those are, you know, you don't step to the other side of the law and take law in your own hands. And if you do, well, then there will be consequences. And if you create a society that is too loose about those consequences, well, then it is going to have to confront a lot of the social fabric and the conditions and the level of crime, you know, in the world and all of that. And you know, I, I look at you and your story in you know the way you you talk with so much heart and depth about both your personal journey, the journey of others in the prison system, as well as what you know has happened over the course of time in in prison. And and I you know one thing I find really refreshing and illuminating about it, you know, in, in discussing this with you and observing your own path is that, for me, it's very hard to slot you in in one of those groups or, or the other. Tell me, I mean, like if you were like the policy maker today, I mean, which of these two camps would you fall in, or how would you counsel people in in both these groups and i mean i don't know if i've done an accurate enough job in trying to like at least in some simple way describe like these two competing kind of ideologies i'm in the third group so the third group is
0: people who understand that nobody wants to be judged
1: by their worst choice nobody wants to be judged by their worst choice what a powerful thought right there jason for for me for for our listeners for any of us i mean that is so true. That is so true. Moreover,
0: that we're all in this together. So, when you combine the two, you know, one
1: of our organizational principles... What do you mean by that? Sorry to interrupt, but what do you mean by we're all in this together? So, much like the John Donne
0: poem, For Whom the Bell Tolls, It Tolls for Thee, we are all a part of this thing called society. So, there is a distinction between, for me, between personal responsibility and societal responsibility. I am... Like philosophically anchored in the value of personal responsibility, understanding that my choices have the power to affect results in my life and in this world. And I am responsible for cultivating my own garden. When I make choices that harm the community, yes, there should be accountability, which is distinct. So the choices we make and the accountability that is required is distinct from the purpose that society establishes that that accountability should be. So prison itself up until now, the purpose has been to punish. I don't think that that is the right way forward. I think the purpose of prison should be to rehabilitate to integrate people. So how do we do it as society? As society, we identify the people who are incarcerated as people. Understand that you must be held accountable for the poor choice you made. And society as society has the responsibility to provide resources while you're incarcerated to help you identify a better choice so you can be responsibly reintegrated. So it's both. Like, yes, people are responsible for their choices and society has a responsibility for creating a context. doesn't invite despair and hopelessness,
1: but invites growth and opportunity. I love it. I love it. I mean, you know, it sounds like such a balanced approach, such a both humane approach and one that respects that um, every situation we have to find a way to help create a more whole world by both um, seeking to bring out the highest potential right in somebody who's gone down you know certain wrong paths in their life, but and at the same time preserve and protect a certain level of safety and security and uh, serenity and uh, all of that that uh, you know. Uh, citizens who are leading disciplined lives you know deservedly seek and expect you know from from their worlds so um yeah so beautifully put so beautifully put jason as you look ahead now at this life that is unfolding for you you know what are you most looking forward to what is your big dream in the years and decades ahead that's easy i i mean it,
0: it may be a little bit selfish but when you ask about like my dream it's It's very simple to watch my boys grow into men that exceed me in every way it's that have a greater capacity for love and intelligence and desire to contribute to this world like that's that's my highest commitment and vision is to be a great dad for them. It starts there. everything, everything for me starts there.
1: Ah, oh, it's beautiful. And your mother, when you came out from prison. What was that moment like for you? Humbling, and you know, that was really um,
0: that was my first, because I had been home for two days before I saw my mom. I paroled, my wife picked me up. with my, my one-year-old son, she was pregnant and took me back to Sacramento, and I didn't see my mom until two days later, because I had to drive north, and that was a very um, humbling and uh, kind of a, a mournful. Like it was the first real reality check for me that 20 years had gone by. Everything else in the world seemed pretty normal. I'm like, oh, you know, it's still the world. A little bit different. People are spending more time looking at their phone than they are, you know, driving or in conversation. But when I went to my mom's house, I could see that 20 years had gone by. It was tough. And it was also just like I said, like it was mournful. Like I've been gone. I've left you out here for 20 years. And uh, and I'm so glad I'm, I'm home to be
1: home with you. Yeah. Jason, it's such a special privilege for me to have you, you know, here in this conversation to be able to offer up to our listeners some of that opportunity for being deeply, deeply stirred, you know, within in being in fellowship with you and in learning and listening from you and walking in your shoes. So I'm just feeling a great sense of gratitude. And I want to ask if you'd be open to perhaps. Having us end with a short meditation together, what do you think? Absolutely. Uh-huh. So, uh, so much of what you have shared and what we've discussed it goes beyond words. It goes beyond words, and when something goes beyond words, then we have to touch spirit. <laughs> you know, so so let's do that. I'm, I'm grateful you're open to it. So, can I invite us both to like close our eyes and? for those who are listening as well as long as you are not driving or walking or something if you can you know if you're sitting somewhere then perhaps you can join us in this and as you close your eyes I want to just invite us to focus on your heart and visualize like the greatest love that you've experienced ever you know visualize that love in your heart feel that feeling of love in your heart and just kind of wrap it in a small little sphere of light feel that love and visualize that light and let's start expanding the sphere from from our heart so that it's grown now to envelop all of you your whole body is bathed in light and love centered in your heart and let's expand it further until your whole home and the community that you're living in and Part of the world that you're in, and and a whole planet is now infused with light and love, emanating from your heart. Feel that love and that sphere of light expanding. Even further, our solar system, and as it expands, the whole universe, an infinite sphere of light and love centered in your heart. Let us include, within that, love. Jason, your father, your mother, your dear family, the family of your victim, all those in prison who have made mistakes, but who are seeking and yearning and hungering for a life well lived. and all those outside prison who are seeking to support them, wait for them, and work towards healing and advancing our world. And while we are at it, the rest of humanity as well, and all of life, enveloped in our love. Thank you, Jason. Such a joy to have you with us. Thank you, Itendra.